welcome to the Joyful Nourishment Podcast, a place for conversations around all things food, eating, body image and nourishment. Here we'll explore and unpack all the things that gets in the way of us having a kind, compassionate relationship with food and eating in our bodies and also how we can find our way back to joyful nourishment in our everyday lives. I'm your host, Lynn Thorstensen, a registered nutrition therapist and body image coach based in the west of Ireland, and I am so glad that you're here. Can you believe it? We are at the last episode of the first season for Joyful Nourishment podcast. I am so grateful that you are here, and if this is your first episode, I would recommend that you can go back and look at all the other ones of the conversations that we've had and the topics we've covered so far in this journey. And if you have been listening from the beginning, again, thank you so much for following along, for being present, and I hope this has been nourishing in whatever way that looks for you. So before we move over to the conversation that I had with Anne, I would like to remind you that you can stay in touch by subscribing to the podcast or signing up for my Substack newsletter so that you will get any and all updates and other information and fresh essays and articles straight in your inbox, mostly weekly. I am already thinking about the next season's content. I have some new guests lined up for more nourishing conversations around our relationship with food eating in our bodies and maybe we might even expand the topic a little bit to other things that are nourishing for our overall human well-being but just make sure that you are subscribed and if you want to leave a rating on your podcast platform please do so because that really helps people finding it and for other people to listening and get some benefits too. Anyway, that's all for me from today. Thank you again and over to the interview that I had with Anne. So welcome back to the Joyful Nourishment podcast. And today I am here with Anne Richardson, who is a nutritionist based in Devon in the south, right? And it's the south of England. Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah, tell yeah. you how good my, my geography of the UK <laughs> is. So Anne is a registered nutritionist who exclusively works with disordered eaters, whether they have received a formal diagnosis or not. And her work is focused more on working with people in the restrictive type eating disorder space, though I would say that all eating disorders have a restrictive component. But um, most of our clients tend to be uh, suffering with anorexia, orthorexia or bulimia in that space and she is also currently doing a diploma in cognitive behavioral therapy and this is reflected in her practice which blends nutrition and CBT and Anne works currently mostly online from her home in Devon in the south of England. Thanks Anne, I'm really excited to have you here and have a conversation with you and the work that you do and a bit about your personal history and hopefully bringing something to the listeners as well that will be helpful for them on their own recovery journeys or their own relationship with food eating in their bodies. So yeah, again, thanks for saying yes to be a guest of the Joyful Nourishment Podcast. Thanks for inviting me on it. 
Yeah, and I this is the one of the things I think that I love with social media is that how you can connect with people and then have actual conversations. So there's a lot of things that I don't like, but this is definitely one of the things that I do like. So I'm really curious if we could start off with kind of a bit about your background, your own history and how you kind of became a nutritionist and then from working you know, training as a nutritionist and then moving into the eating disorder space or the disordered eating space, if, if we could kind of go in that direction. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a, a long story, but I'll try to keep it relatively short, otherwise we will just take the whole hour for that. Um, so um, I had anorexia in my teens. Um, it's complicated as to know why, but um, I'm French. Um, in France, the ideal woman is, maybe was, I don't know exactly now, but um, quite um, slim, if not thin, in, in the 90s. Um, and I was never um, big. Uh, no one would have classified me as big, but I felt big. I felt huge compared to the others. Um, things were going on at home. No, like massive traumas, but nonetheless quite um, complicated family life. Um, and basically, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be pretty. I wanted to be loved um, and all that. So I decided to lose a bit of weight. And um, and I did. And people said, oh, my gosh, you know, you've lost weight. You know, how lovely. And and so I thought, oh, check me out, you know. Um, um, if I lose a bit more weight, maybe I'll be even better. And so I did. And, mm -hmm. you know. All the boys who had never even noticed my existence before suddenly were very interested in me and I was very happy to have all those boys around me. It was it was great. Um, and then, you know, I thought, well, if I lose a bit more weight, I'll be even more great. And and then I carried on and I carried on. And then one day I realized that no one told me I look amazing anymore. And actually I didn't. Um, mm. And I had lost a lot of weight. Um, bizarrely, it wasn't really picked up on. It was, you know, my friends could see. My mum was beside herself with worries, mm, but I didn't really have any formal help, any like doctors or anything. Um, eventually, when I, I think eventually, I can't remember when a doctor said to me that I probably had a bit of a touch of anorexia. We were talking at. We were talking earlier, it might come up again, but a touch of anorexia. And I always say, you know, enough to be chic, but uh, not enough to be hospitalized, right? Mm -hmm. um, when I, I had more than a touch of anorexia, but um, anyway, so I, I had anorexia um, and it lasted for quite a long time because I didn't have any help. So, mm -hmm. you know, I dragged that for quite a few years. Um, and then I think I grew a bit tired of it all, of counting, of of everything, of, of feeling awful in my body. Um, and and I think part of me wanted to, to stop. And I actually moved to the UK when I was 19. I moved to London. And, and I think that was a really good opportunity for me to sort of get better. And um, out of sheer stubbornness, I basically got better and I started to eat uh, again. And, and I did get better. And then I just sort of left the whole eating disorder more or less behind me. I think for quite... Maybe a year or two, I was probably in quasi-recovery, not really knowing what it was, but but it was okay because I moved on from that, so it was yeah. fine. 
And then I got to, you know, went to uni, got a job, um, and I was working in publishing, and uh, I was married by then. And it was around the sort of like the financial crash in 2008, and I was growing more and more dissatisfied with my office job. I worked in publishing, and I thought surely there needs to be more to life than just making money, especially for other people. That's just interesting. Um, I'm not sure I can do this. And I had this strong urge to help people. Um, and, and I was interested in nutrition. And so I decided to uh, retrain. Um, and, and I did that for three years. And unlike quite a lot of people with a history of eating disorders, I didn't want to make people healthy. I wasn't really into the healthy, healthy kind of mm-hmm. thing. I really wanted to show that food could be our ally. Food could help us get better, but not I wasn't interested in weight loss. I was definitely not interested in eating disorders. No way I was going to go there. I had done that in there. Mm. Didn't want to be doing that. Um, yeah, the plan was just to sort of use food to be healthy and or but but normal kind of healthy, not like healthy thin healthy. Yeah, um, which is not a thing. <laughs> and. Um, I think I had disclosed on my website that I had anorexia. And I think because of that, I started having people coming to see me with eating disorders. And I thought, hang on a minute, I'm not trained for this. I, I'm i not going there and I'm out of my depth. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know anything. And then I also realized that people who didn't have an eating disorder came to me with very strange habits when it came to food and quite disordered actually. Mm. really reminiscent of my eating sort of days and I thought hang on I mean there's something there so I thought okay right um, I'm going to retrain not completely but I thought I, I need to train again in eating disorders so off I went to do that and very quickly maybe after a year or so I decided that that's all I would do to eating disorders even though it was really not what I wanted to do um <laughs> But maybe it was just to be that way. And, yeah. and now I only see people with eating disorders. Uh, so, yeah, I, my life is, is eating disorders. So basically, I talk about eating disorders. I, I write about eating disorders. I speak about eating disorders. I, you know, read about eating disorders. You know, it's, <laughs> it's my life is eating disorders, basically, and food. So that's not what the plan was, but that's what it is. That's how it, yeah. And I do know, like, from watching your instagram as well that you are quite a foodie as well and do a lot of mm. baking and and what you said there that idea of like food being an an ally and the relationship with food being you know like supportive and an ally and something that is enjoyable and pleasurable and that really resonated with me because i think there was definitely some there was a lot of that for me in my original nutrition training as well that drew me to it but like you as you got out of practice and you sort of realized oh it's not as just like telling people what they should be eating and I wasn't really interested in like helping people lose weight um because why would I do that when that wasn't didn't work for me and I didn't I never weighed myself anyway so I had stuff that but just that kind of like like that supportive relationship with food and then you notice like oh people don't have that or it's it's just it isn't there so um yeah thank you for bringing that up and I just think Mm. it's kind of funny how how things can kind of come around full circle again yeah and the other thing that 
your when you were sharing your story that made me think about as well like that kind of typical how I and I'm wondering how you see this in your work as well like the story around yeah you know I'll just lose a little bit of weight for different reasons there might be different kind of entry points into that and then that's kind of like people congratulating oh you look great and you know they look so much better now or or not even just like oh you look you look really well and and quote unquote healthy whatever that means you know which we know health doesn't have a look either and and then it can just sort of snowball into a point which is like well a bit more than and a bit more than and all of a sudden it's like gets to a point where now it's not helpful or healthy or or anything anymore and it's just really mm. difficult and I just wonder like does your story kind of show up in your clinical practice as well like similar kind of stories for how people's eating issues sort of start off yeah I see a lot of teenagers and and I see I see it a lot of teenagers and it's, I think it's a bit worse uh, now um, because of social media, I really don't think social media has created eating disorders. It, it, you know, it existed before, and um, in my days, there, did, there was no social media. But now it's even worse because the validation is constant. For me, the validation was going to school and people going, "Oh, you look, you look good." Um, but here you can now you can post a photo of yourself and you're in your bedroom, and people will comment on your body while you're not even with them and I find that terrifying and obviously yeah. with the filters and all that you, you you are exposed to bodies that aren't even real um but yeah I see I see a lot of that snippets of my stories in my my teenagers um who yeah feel validated sometimes they were a little bit bigger or or just you know they were growing into themselves and then they lose a bit of weight and suddenly people go you know you look amazing and inside they feel awful but they look apparently amazing and so they are spurred on to keep on going um and it's tragic really and it's really difficult to stop that's the thing people don't realize is once you're in it snowballs i always say it's like it's like Alice in Wonderland, you know, she just goes, oh, you know, there's this like interesting thing. I'm going to have a look. Oh, I can't see very well. I'm going to go and see. And then, bam, she's, she's falling down the rabbit hole and you're down the rabbit hole. And it's quite hard to get out of there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's kind of and we we spoke a little bit about this before we started recording around this. Well, you said the doctor that you saw said, oh, well, you had a, a touch of anorexia or when people say, oh, I wish, you know, I would just have a little bit of anorexia so that, you know, that would be helpful. But like, how would you from even from your lived experience, like to say, well, that isn't a helpful comment, you know, in any way. And that it's like, like what you just said, like once you're in that rabbit hole, like how difficult it is to actually come back out of it. I mean, first of all, as I've got older, I'm not ancient, ancient, but I'm much older than, than I used to be. I'm, I always say I'm the oldest I've ever been, so, you know, I feel older. Um, so um, with age, I have mellowed a little bit. And so I am now able to see that when people make a comment like that, even though we might feel enraged by it as um, sufferers or ex-sufferers or practitioners, I try to remember that they don't mean it in a bad way. Usually it's just ignorance or sometimes they're just trying to fill the space. They they want to be helpful and they want to crack a joke. So they are 
or they just talk about themselves. When someone says, "Oh, I wish I had a bit of a a bit of anorexia," it would be helpful before the I don't know the Christmas holiday or after the Christmas holiday, whatever. They they are basically saying, "I'm a bit bothered about my weight, and I'm looking at you, and I can see you're smaller than me, and I'm thinking I should do something about it." Clearly, you have your thing. It might be unhelpful, but you have managed. And I wish I had something because. I can't lose the weight. So that's basically what they're saying. And I don't think it's mm. fair to kind of go ballistic at them and go, how dare you? Because chances are those people are also somehow suffering a little bit. So that's my first thing. Um, but then I think I would try and explain to them, depending on the situation, yes, I would need to, you, those people need to understand that it's not something you can switch on and off. Um, often it starts very innocently and a lot of the teenagers I see think, especially at the beginning, they think that they can control it. You know, you know, I'll do this for a little bit, and then you know, before it gets bad, I will stop. But it never works like that. Yeah, it never works like that. You get sucked in, and it is impossible. And it sounds crazy to be scared of eating a potato. But that's what happens, and you're just looking at that potato. You can look at it for hours, and no, you're not going to eat it. I remember I had chocolate in my in my room as, at, at university and I never ate them. It's, it wasn't about control. It just didn't even occur to me to eat them. It was almost like it wasn't food. It was, yeah, it sounds weird, but it, it was not something that I would ever eat. Whereas now I would, but um, I, w- I was a different person and I was... Um, so taken by the illness that I just didn't think like anyone else any sort of what I call normal eaters so it's those people need to understand that it's not something you decide to have and then it's not something that you can get rid of just like that yeah and I think that's as well I remember somebody I, I was working with and when when they came to me they were only like a a bit kind of like well I need to lose weight there was a few underlying factors to sort of like to get healthy and then bam it just wasn't as easy to just like kind of like stop doing that and when they came to see me it was only maybe six or eight months into that journey and I thought okay this isn't too bad because it hasn't been going on for like decades or even a few Mm. years and I was probably naively thinking well, we can turn this around fairly quickly, but that's wasn't it wasn't as easy as that to just kind of like, okay, let's just increase the food intake because the barrier to make that happen was much bigger than like from what I was sitting thinking that it was going to be. So it's a real, I think, like it's hard to understand how how difficult that is when you haven't had that experience. Um, and I, I like from my understanding in the research into particular anorexia nervosa, we don't under we don't know exactly why for some people it just becomes really the more a starve the brain becomes the harder it becomes to eat. Whereas the more normal function is that when food becomes available again, you eat as much as you can, and that's often what happens, you know, in the binge restrict cycle or the restrict mm-hmm. binge cycle. So like if you hadn't had an experience from the outside it probably is like well 
just eat a thing like you know why why are you making such a big deal out of it but it's it's just not that yeah it's eat a thing and then you'll feel better and i would say you know in a way my job is really hard because people come to me especially again the teenagers the, the adults usually have had it for um, longer and they are ready to let go but the, the teenagers are sent by their parents so it's very different so they come to me with something that they've developed over like a few weeks or a few months, years maybe, and they're pretty good at it. Actually that thing, even though they're very intelligent, they know it's not good, but it makes them feel better. And here I come, you know, on Zoom, on the screen, you know, with my funny French accent, and I go, hey, you know, we've got to stop doing that because it's not, it's not good. I mean, obviously I don't say that, but essentially that's what they hear. And they go like, sorry French lady you know what I'm not doing that I'm really good at this you're not going to take my thing uh, and especially as you know potentially I might say to them you know we need to eat blah 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 um, but the thing is when they start eating they don't feel better they feel worse so it's a really hard pill to swallow excuse the pun but you know it's a really hard pill yeah. to swallow she's taking my 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 thing the thing I'm really good at that makes me feel good and she's replacing it with something that I'm really scared of that makes me feel awful yeah, I'm not doing this. Um, and so that's why I think it's really tricky, especially with teenagers, and it can take a long time and, and, and it can be really frustrating and, and really hard for the parents because yeah. on, on average, you know, I say to people, we're going to work together for six months, but often six months is not even enough. And it feels to most people, six months is such a long time. But when it comes to eating food, it's not that long. Um, uh, and sometimes we have to spend like a couple of months to sort of dance around and sort of get to know each other, which sounds crazy, but yeah. that's what we have to do. So that they sort of kind of trust me and trust their bodies. And then we sort of, we can actually make some progress, but it is frustrating. Yeah. And I think that's why, because of that dynamic, it's like the restrictive eating disorders, because the medicine is also in the food and that is the kind of, the biggest hurdle there and that sort of dichotomy it is so difficult to kind of um when whereas when I when I work with people who often have like you know we're in the binge restrict cycle once you stop the restriction and your food intake is stabilizing it's like it sort of evens out the other end it's a much easier not that it's easy either definitely specifically like it's not always easy because there could be other things but like in the eating part that part tends to be much mm. easier because it's like well we're just kind of even things out and it just it feels more what should I say like almost intuitive to move in that direction because that's the yeah. part of the physiology but yeah the one of the things that I was really curious as well that I wanted to ask you particularly around is eating um restrictive eating disorders and the work that you do because you're a nutritionist and I was I'm really curious about like your take on why nutrition and it's, it's such an important part of the recovery process particularly around this and that's not to minimize of course the therapeutic work around working with emotions and maybe underlying trauma and stuff but why the, the nutrition part is so important beyond just like basic weight restoration. 
Yeah, so first of all, when I work with clients, I, I, I'm always in touch with their GPs and, and they always have a psychologist as well. So that is not just me doing things. So the, the, the medical side of it needs to be sort of taken care of. And yes, the emotions are really important. We, we talk about emotions in my, you know, in my practice with clients, but, but I think it's at a um, more superficial level that a psychologist would. And so it's really important they have someone else there talking about things really in depth to so the emotions. And um, nutrition is important because um, eating disorders, especially when people restrict heavily, um, um, eating disorders are mental illnesses, but they're also a physiological one, physical one, and especially when they restrict heavily. Because clearly, if you're going to restrict your food intake um, um, a lot, you are not going to be nourished and fed correctly. And that's going to have an impact on um, on your organs and especially your brain. And, the, and if your brain isn't functioning correctly, then you're not thinking correctly. And then you can have the best psychologist around. It's going to be really difficult to get out of, a, of an eating disorder because you're not actually comprehending what the nutrition or what the um, psychologist is trying to um, to teach you. So that's why to me, nutrition is really important it's not enough on its own never but it's important um and weight restoration is important so clearly i see people who are typically underweight but not necessarily not all the time um but it's not like your weight restored and then you're okay i was talking to i was i sent an email to a, a doctor earlier and it's about a girl who is at um, has been discharged from the hospital because she's at a safe weight um, and um, she's better, but she's not totally weight restored. And I, I spoke to a mum yesterday whose daughter is technically weight restored on paper, but I don't think she's at the weight that her body is happy at. Doesn't mean she needs to gain 20 kilos but I, I think she needs to regain more weight because she is displaying yeah. uh, behaviors which are still disordered like hiding food in the pockets or things um to me that is saying that the brain is panicking around around dinner time or meal time and that she can't help but do those things so I don't think she's completely weight restored even though she is on paper yeah um we we all have um the paper is only working so well you know we all have um different sort of not explaining this very well but we're not all going to sit at the same way now i always take this example i've got two sons and um when i look at you know where they have been tracking on their little booklet you know what you have a, like a red book in the uk okay. when you're born and my first one has always been tracking on the 75th centile. He's not overweight, he's perfectly fine, 75 is, is good, um, great. Um, and my youngest one has always been tracking on the 50th centile. If my eldest suddenly dropped to the um, 50th centile, I would know something is wrong. Technically, he would be fine. He would be healthy on paper, but he wouldn't be healthy. For him, it's not yeah. right. He's, he's a, a 75 kind of... Kind of, yeah. kind of boy because my little one is 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 more little um, and if suddenly he, he went to 75th I would probably think oh that's kind of odd I probably wouldn't do anything about it because and also I don't I don't actually um, track their weights but uh, 
but there would be something something different about him, potentially a growth spurt about to arrive or something, but we're not all going to be the same on paper, hence yeah. why the BMI is only so good, even the child for children is only so good, we're not all going to be at, 70, at the, the 50 cent time. So yeah. that the girl I was talking about who is hiding stuff, I think she is probably like at a 50 cent on, on paper, but she might need to be at 75. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and thank you for explaining that. And I think this is what I'm observing when when I met with people who have had a, an eating disorder maybe for a long time and they've been in and out of hospital maybe and they've just been force-fed or weight-restored, say, up to that kind of baseline level, you're kind of out of danger. And then people get stuck in this sort of quasi-recovery and there's not enough nutritional support to help them push, you know, alongside the psychological support to fully re-nourish so that you're not, the brain isn't starving anymore. So some of those behaviors that are actually as a result of starvation kind of goes away because like, it's not a thing anymore. And, mm. I, and I feel like that's kind of, it's almost like that as well, which ties in with the illness is like, well, when people come out of hospital, well, you should be fine now. But like, they're not fine. They're only just about like out of immediate danger. It's like learning to drive a car. It's like you got your end plates, but it doesn't mean you're a fully fledged driver. It just means like, hopefully you were safe enough not to kill somebody in the process while you're learning more. Yeah, absolutely. And again, with my, my great age, I, I've come to be a bit more mellow about hospitals. So here and I see a lot of Instagram people going, you know, hospitals, they're terrible. You know, we pick up lots of um, bad habits, which is true. But hospitals are also saving lives. They're, yeah. they're there to keep people, you know, alive. Um, and, and then, yes, they are discharged. And the people at the hospital know that when you discharge someone, they're not sorted. But they can only do so much. They only have so yeah. many beds. And, and, yes, I think there should be more support uh, for when people come out of the hospital and and I think there should be more support that isn't private because, you know, it's expensive. Yeah. Um, but the hospitals do, you know, have a purpose and thank goodness they are there because otherwise Absolutely. it would just be a disaster. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And like in Ireland, uh, the support, like even in, in hospital is really limited. Like people have to be really bad to, to get there which is again a whole other conversation with how mm. the system and the support and like how early intervention can really um, save people like both their lives and a lot of suffering as well if if um, if people are supported much earlier and if things are recognized as as a problem much earlier which is uh, it's usually not really the thing um, mm. either so I suppose I wonder, is there a couple of things, one or something that that you could help, like that you, you'd want to share with the listeners around like what's helpful when, particularly when you're in this ambivalent space of like knowing that you want things to be different, but like the fear of foods or eating more is still challenging like what are do you have any like techniques or practices or words of wisdom that you know if somebody is listening to our conversation today and it kind of gone 
right, you know, I don't really want to be doing this anymore, but I feel really stuck and maybe support isn't that accessible or they're still kind of thinking maybe I'm not sick enough or just what, what can, what, like, what's, what is your kind of my long winded question is like, <laughs> what would you, like, what are the things you use to help people move kind of in forward from that place of ambivalence? Okay, well, if someone thinks they're not sick enough, it's slightly different because then we have to sort of, I, I would urge them to try and think about what life would be like without eating disorder, just to sort of, to help them. But I think that's slightly different to your first question, okay. I, I, I suspect, which is, you know, when someone wants to get better, but they just don't know how to do it. I would say that my first piece of advice and probably the most important one is to eat by the clock don't ask yourself too many questions the moment you ask yourself questions first of all the eating disorder is going to pipe up and try to sort of say something different so you have to treat it as a as a very sort of almost like a mechanical thing i need to have um i mean three meals is is obvious but um depending on the person maybe two three snacks um maybe one but I think two is probably best to start with two so you know let's say three meals two snacks when am I going to have them okay I'm going to have breakfast I'm going to have lunch I'm going to have dinner I need two snacks when am, am I going to have them um it could be morning and afternoon or afternoon and, and evening which ones am I likely to do realistically and then you need to sort of follow that rule regardless of what you think I'm not interested in whether you are hungry whether you feel like it whether you know, it sounds harsh, but it, essentially I'm asking you to treat food as medicine. Food is not medicine. Food is food. With, and eating, with eating disorders, especially when people restrict a lot, the only really known cure for that is food. So in that respect, food is medicine when it comes to eating disorders. You know, when yeah. on different playing fields. Sort of I would agree. Uh, and so you have to almost like have a contract with yourself and you're going to have to eat. Um, um, so even though you don't want to, you eat. And if you feel like you are not hungry, you don't fancy anything, my advice would be pick something that you know you normally eat. I was ill a few weeks ago, um, some kind of tummy bug or something. Um, so I didn't eat as much as normal or, you know, I didn't eat much, but... Uh, after one, I thought, you know, I don't feel so good and I know I need to eat now because I really, you know, I'm low in energy. I don't feel like anything, but we've got salmon that he's eating. I know I like salmon. I'm going to have that with rice because usually we have rice with it. And there's going to be some, you know, tons of stem broccoli. I might not fancy it right now, but once I start eating, it should be okay. And, and it was. So that's kind of what I would say to people. But it's really hard, um, especially if you're on your own, you have to motivate yourself. Yeah. Um, but there is a, a great sense of achievement when, uh, in doing that because you didn't want to do it, but you sort of forced yourself uh, to do it and, and you kind of live to tell the tale. So um, usually people, I think, find that quite empowering. And then I said to people, if you've done this once, you can maybe try and do it another time. And don't look too far ahead. Although it's helpful to look at what you want in the future, sometimes just take it, literally divide it, or even meal by meal. 
Okay, I'll see if I can do breakfast. After that, I can always go back to starving myself if I want to. But let's let's go and have breakfast. Oh, well, it's yeah. snack time. I really want to starve myself, but let's see if I can do snack. And then yeah. we'll, we can think about starving again later on. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with you. And I think and something as well, like with that, particular when people are on their own, like some of my clients find like having alarms and stuff like set to remind them um really helps and can be so helpful in that just mm. that structured mechanical eating um because it just it just has like it just has to happen and I think this is where when somebody is in that space or this is where they currently are with their relationship with food and then you're picking up a lot of information around intuitive eating and eating when you're hungry and all this it's like it's that isn't a place for that when when they because that just at that point serves the eating disorder it's like you have to do the structure first and making sure that that is happening so the body and the brain gets re-nourished before you can start to be a bit more kind of like oh am I hungry yeah I need something now but even at that sure sometimes we have to eat because if I don't eat now when I get hungry in an hour or two it's completely impractical <laughs> to try to eat something Absolutely. Then, so it's just I think with a lot of this stuff and then maybe this is like the social media stuff that lacks the nuance we'll just get snippets of information and we just pick it up as like black put it in the black and white thinking boxes and it's like oh this has to be like this all the time or not at all and it's like no it's nuanced and complex and here when you're recovering from a restrictive eating disorder it's like putting your meals and snacks and sticking doing your best to try to stick to that that's what I'm hearing you mm. say and making sure that one meal at a time and you can always go back the next time yeah. yeah and it is hard and even even what I'm seeing is like even when when people are highly motivated to do that it's still hard yeah, and a big part of my role is to be um, a cheerleader, really, and to say, you're doing okay, you know, let's, let's, do, let's do another another week of this, and yeah, um, yeah cheerleader. It is. So, um, I have one more question for you, Anne, before we sort uh-huh. of round off our conversation, and since I named this podcast Joyful Nourishment, one of the questions that I like to ask my my guest, I should say, is what does mm-hmm. joyful nourishment mean to you? Okay, so it means two things. First of all, that it first of all it means something to do with food, and then and then beyond that. Um, so I'll start with food. I think for me, food it, uh, joyful nourishment means kind of I like food to taste good. Um, it's actually my biggest priority. It needs to taste good. Um, I quite like it to look good as well. I know I, did, I posted something yesterday about about completely the opposite, but 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 I, I I I'm quite a visual person, so I like things to look good, um, and I like food to do good to my body, and that means it could be because I'm giving it iron or you know B vitamins or stuff, or do good to my soul. Um, that's also what I mean by do good you know it makes me feel happy uh, I I'm not even though I'm a nutritionist I don't spend my days eating kale and chia seeds 
um, I quite like them. I, mean, I don't love cheese eats, but uh, I need food that makes me feel happy. Um, and that's what I mean by do good. Um, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes it's kale and sometimes it's ice cream or whatever. Toasted I quite like a Marmite, cheese and Marmite toasted sandwich. That's kind of where I'm at. You've lived in the UK for too long. <laughs> yes, yes. I know it's not French, is it? Um, yeah. Um, so, and, and so I sometimes I talk to people about feeding different hunger. Yeah, of course, you feel like stomach hunger. It's almost like 12 o'clock now. I'm feeling a bit hungry. I can see my, I can feel my stomach is asking for food. So that's stomach hunger. Then I, I like to satisfy mouth hunger. So that's what I mean about food tasting good. It needs to taste good. You know, I'm not eating stuff that I don't like. Um, cottage cheese, for example. No. Uh, and sometimes it looks good, but not all the time. And, and I like the food that makes me I feel good. And I think when I have all of that, when I have met all the different hunger, the stomach, the mouth, the heart, etc., then essentially my mind is quiet. And mm. if you can get to a point where your mind is quiet, and I think you know that what you're eating is, is correct. Um, and definitely that you have moved on to full recovery because most of the time I don't really think about food even though I speak about food literally all the time I don't think about food that much um, only when it's it's getting to your meal time and I just go I'm very hungry what should I have you know you just, then that but that's quite normal yeah. so that's what I mean about food and uh, joyful nourishment but I also think and that's really quite important that food is just one thing you know it's not that important, even though it is my job and I talk about it all the time, it's not that important actually. Can we just have other things? And I need to be nourished in other ways. And before we recorded the podcast, I was telling you that I'm actually quite stressed at the moment, a bit frazzled. And that's because I have been working quite a lot recently. Uh, my husband has been away last weekend, which was a bank holiday weekend. And you know, I had the kids and I had a lot of work to do. And and, and essentially, I haven't done really anything for myself for a while, and I haven't nourished my body properly. I haven't really engaged in a lot of exercise. I quite like to do yoga. Uh, I don't feel guilty about it, but I, I find it good to do it, to clear my mind. But at the moment, I'm so tired. I'm not doing it because I know it would be wrong for my body. So I haven't done that. I'm, um, I'm someone who is um, a bit of a maker. I like making stuff. So food, I'm always making stuff, but I'd give a go at anything. You know, I'm, you know I do drilling, uh, I do lots of things at home. I like decorating, you know, I'm a bit rubbish, but I quite like sewing, felting, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I quite like doing stuff. And that sort of is a sort of form of nourishment for me, it's a sort of meditation, it's quite important. And nature is really important for me, and the sea in particular. I grew up by the sea, I live by the sea, and now and again I just go, I need to go in the sea. And I had that this morning, I thought, you know, I need need to go, I need to go for a swim, and that will nourish me. And usually when I go, I go with a group of people, we always have cake after. So it's not just a, it's not just the sea, it's it's the sea, it's the, it's the air, it's the, the memories of my childhood, it's the scenery, it's the friend, it's the laughter, it's the cold, it's the cake, it's the, the time away from work. And, and, and usually when I come back from the sea with my friends, I just go, okay, I'm reset. We can, yeah. we can do some stuff. That's and I a, haven't done that. And that's such a, 
that's such a beautiful way I think of you really touched on like all these different elements that feeds into nourishment and also what you said there is like when we're well nourished like physically from food often that's like that there's a good sign that the mind sort of quiets down it's like when we're <clears> thinking about it all the time chances are that it's highly likely we're actually eating enough and if we're constantly thinking about food we're probably not eating enough even if our <clears> brains are disordered eating or society says that it should be this is how 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 much that should technically be enough but if we're constantly thinking about food I don't think we're eating enough no so good and no. then when you are in that space um there's then we have space for all these other things that actually nourishes us as well beyond mm. just like our physical bodies creatively yeah. spiritually emotionally so yeah so thank you so much for this really rich conversation. I'm hoping that be loads of things that people can take away from this. So as we close, I would love to invite you to tell people where they can find you. And I will put, of course, all those links in the show notes as well. Okay. Um, um, so yeah, I mean, you can, uh, you can find me uh, on my website, which uh, is um, the eating disorder nutritionist.co.uk. I'm also on Instagram as the eating disorder nutritionist. Um, that's kind of pretty much where I live. So um, you can always get in touch with me yeah. if you have any questions. And Anne has a lovely Instagram and she just redid her website. So I definitely think you should all go and check it out. And thanks again for being a guest. No, you're welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Joyful Nourishment. This podcast is produced solely by me with no financial backing and your support means a lot to keep this project going. If this episode has been helpful in any way, it really helps this podcast to help others if you click like, subscribe or leave a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. And of course, you can also subscribe so that you won't miss any future episodes find out more about what I do in my private practice and what I offer over on straightforwardnutrition.com and I am currently taking on new clients so you will find a link to book in for a free 30-minute session in the show notes if this is something you're interested in and finally please come and join the joyful nourishment community over on Substack by subscribing to my newsletter